In a land far away, there was a wise woman who knew a great deal about people because she traveled from place to place. One day she arrived at a strange village. Um, I'm a stranger to this land, and I'm fascinated by these very large bundles all of you seem to be carrying. You never seem to put them down. What is their purpose? Oh, these? These are our grudges. Your grudges? My, that's a lot of grudges to carry at such a young age. Oh, they're not all mine. Most of them were passed... <laughs> Most of them were passed down in my family. See that girl over there? My, I have quite a, lo- a load of grudges against her family. Her great-great-grandfather called mine a horse thief when they both wanted to, wanted to be elected mayor. You all look so unhappy. Is there no way to get rid of all of these bundles? We've forgotten how. You see, at first we were proud of our grudges. Tourists came from miles around. (laughs) But after a few years, our town became a very dreary place. Nobody came, and we had forgotten how to stop holding our grudges. You know, if you really want to get rid of those grudges, I think I know five magic words that could do the trick. You do? That would be a miracle. I'll go... I'll go and have the mayor call together all the people. The mayor lost no time calling the people to the village square. The mayor and the wise woman stood where they could see all the hunched-over villagers. Good people, a wonderful thing has happened. A very wise stranger has come to our town. She says she can tell us the magic words that will rid us of these grudges we have carried for generations. How many of you would like to be able to straighten up and have your grudges disappear? Look at the world in a whole new way. Well, come listen to the wise words of our visitor and then do as she tells us. My friends, these are simple words, but some people find them very hard to speak. I think, however, that you have the courage to speak them. The trick is that you must say them to each other and truly mean them. The first two words are, I'm sorry. Can you say them? I'm sorry. Sorry. Now, the other three words are, I forgive you. <laughs> Can you say that? Thank you. 
It's a good start. Now you have to keep saying this to each other. They slowly started to grumble and then more articulately say these words to one another. First one person, then another said those words to each other. Soon they were all saying them to each other, quietly and then louder. And then, would you believe it, just like the wise woman predicted, the grudges began to disappear. I forgive you. I forgive you. <laughs> hey, uh, look, all the trees, they've grown. <laughs> Jeff, is that you? <laughs> so good to see you. Oh, buddy. Oh, good to see you, Jeff. Man, it I'm feels sorry. good to stand up and there was dancing in the streets that day. I can't say they lived happily ever after. They still fought at times. But now they knew some simple words that allowed them to live together in peace. Thank you, John and actors and Heidi Mastrud for coordinating with our uh, talented, dramatic team. <clears throat> the second reading isn't nearly as exciting as that, that skit. It's an excerpt from How Can I Forgive You by Janice Abrams Spring. One day, two children are playing in the sandbox. They are having fun, sharing and getting along nicely. Their laughter can be heard ringing in the air. And then, all of a sudden, one of the children gets mad and storms away. As he runs to the nearby swings, he turns and cries out to his playmate, I hate you, and I'm never going to play with you again. However, not ten minutes later, the two are back together, playing and laughing and enjoying the day. To anyone who has children or has had the opportunity to observe children, this may sound quite familiar. Siblings or friends have some kind of falling out, then within a very short time are back together as if nothing had happened at all. If only it were so easy for us adults. We often have a harder time rebounding from spats or slights. I know I do from hurts. There seems to be more to hang on to. It seems so often that it is harder to let go and move on. In that above interaction with the children, as their parents watch the unfolding events, one father shakes his head in amazement and says to the other father with a mix of admiration and just wonder, how do kids do that? How can they be at each other's throats one minute and get along so well the next? It's easy, the other father explains. They choose happiness over righteousness. What a good piece. I didn't think of this at the 9 o'clock service, but it really does have those themes of the wrestling, the struggling. How do you forgive in those moments, those glimpses of peace, perhaps, when you do? So forgiveness is kind of like the Minnesota State Fair, as far as I figure it. It's huge. 
You need days to explore it all. One visit is hardly enough. There is so much terrain. So luckily, we have a whole month, January, to explore forgiveness. And you've already heard two wonderful sermons from Kelly Clement and Kate Tucker. And I love, I hope you love these monthly themes we look at as we really have a chance to go deeper into these, these religious ideas. So this morning, we're not going to explore the whole state fair, the whole realm of possibilities around forgiveness. I want to explore one little piece of that landscape. One of the definitions of forgiveness that I really like is this. To forgive is to give up all hope for a better past. Hear hear that again. (laughs) To forgive is to give up all hope for a better past. Amen. Amen. To forgive is to give up all hope for a better past. Because forgiveness in so many ways is about the future. And as individuals, what I want to focus on today is the power that we have to allow authentic forgiveness to be a healing and peace-filled force in our lives as we move into our futures. Is this easy work? Ha! No, it's not easy work. And I'll be honest, there have been times in my own life where that indignant righteousness has got a hold of me so strong, I have been so blinded to the possibilities of forgiveness, I was the hero who had been wronged and would not relent until the person who wronged me acknowledged the wrong and justice was served. It reminds me of this Buddhist parable. There's a person who was struck by an arrow from an unknown attacker. Instead of pulling out the arrow and taking care of the wound, the person is determined not to rest until the attacker is found and punished. This individual's friends plead, plead, stop, allow the healing process to begin. We can help, just just stop and, and, and we can deal with this. But the individual insists on wearing the arrow as evidence of the harm that has been done. Ultimately, the wound festers and the infection kills this person. And the story asks us, Who is more responsible, or what is more responsible for this death? The archer's arrow, or the victim's foolish holding on? Think of our skit this morning. Isn't it true, and these grudges that are still up here, I love this, that they're they're here, they're tangible, you can see them. Isn't it true that despite our best intentions, we often focus on everything but removing the arrow on everything but laying down the grudges. The truth we know, the truth we know is that when we hold on to hate and anger, resentment and bitterness, we are giving away space in our hearts, in our lives. We're giving it away rent-free. And we're in bondage to that hate and anger. But there's a payoff. I mean, we don't do this just willy-nilly. There's a payoff for holding on to that hate and anger and resentment, it can provide a sense, an illusion, perhaps, of real power, right? No one can make me forgive. I'll never forgive, and I'll never be hurt like that again. It feels like we have some control over that pain. So we often put up a wall, brick by brick, which keeps those new hurts from coming in, but prevents the old hurts 
from actually getting out. And when we can't forgive, when the hurts can't leave, we become a sort of walking wounded, hurt, resentful, bitter. This woundedness can manifest itself in our bodies with addictions, perhaps, or in our relationships with this unhealthy patterns that we may not even be aware of. It's hard to move away from hate and anger. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nouwen writes, I have often said, I forgive you. But even as I said those words, my heart remained angry or resentful. I still wanted to hear the story that tells me I was right after all. I still wanted to hear apologies and excuses. I still wanted to have the satisfaction of receiving some praise in return for having said I forgive you. If only the praise was for being so forgiving. But here's the thing that I want to focus on this morning, is that forgiveness is really a me thing. It's not me, Justin, but a personal thing. It is about acknowledging and naming the hurt, not necessarily trying to track down the one who hurt you. It is about acknowledging and naming that hurt so that peace and healing might begin. That kind of forgiveness doesn't even require the other person to be in the equation. With that understanding of forgiveness, you might forgive someone who doesn't even know or care or accept your forgiveness because it's about you. Forgiveness is about naming the wound so you can let it go, at least for part of the time, to move into the future with peace and a different understanding. Reconciliation is a we thing. In reconciliation, you need another person so you can talk it through, and the goal is both of you being in right relationship. But forgiveness, as I'm talking about it this morning, you don't need the other person. It's a me thing. And let me be clear about forgiveness, because uh, as I've explored these themes, this is the theme, I think, that has the most realness, the most texture in our lives. We all have something we've done or a way we've been wounded, and forgiveness is central. So let me be clear. I'm not saying we should tolerate everything that happens to us and just forgive it. Forgiveness is not about approving or accepting or forgetting the behavior or hurt, that which hurt you. It's not about staying in an abusive relationship or a bad situation and turning the other cheek, just hoping that things will get better. And I also realize that some things probably feel unforgivable, may be unforgivable. I, I remember a couple of years ago I preached on this topic and a woman after the sermon service called me up and said, Justin, we need to go have a talk. And we sat down together and she said, the sermon was fine, but you made this seem like it was just this easy thing to do. And I have to tell you, I was, she had this experience 20 years ago that she was still carrying with her and she said, I can't begin to forgive this. And so we talked about little ways she could start. So I understand that it is hard and painful work. But what I really want you to hear this morning is that forgiveness is about the future. It's about your future, and forgiveness can be just about you. The only thing, and I learned this day after day in my relationship, and I trust you as well in as you move through the world, the only thing that we really have any control over in this life of ours is how we respond to what comes across our path. And so 
we have a choice about how we respond to the ways that we have been hurt. The person who hurt us might be in prison or dead, and even from beyond, from behind bars or from, from the grave, we can give them power or not to continue to hurt us. Perhaps something awful happened, but you're not going to allow that to take over your life, to define your life. We don't have to hold on to the pain and hurt like a terrible prize we won, at the, maybe at the state fair. We don't have to be in bondage to that pain and anger. The pain and anger happen to us, but it's not the essence of who we are. There is always a choice available. And thus, forgiveness is about moving the heart toward peace. Forgiveness is about giving up all hope for a better past. And that can liberate us from bondage. As we are liberated, we free up space in our heart where love can grow and blossom. And if it's true that we are here on earth to figure out how best to love and to learn as best we can, then forgiveness is a critical piece of that. So my hope this morning is to offer three practical ways to begin to live with more genuine forgiveness in our lives. The first, if you haven't already figured this out, is to find a story that reminds you of the cost of not forgiving, the cost of not letting go of the grudges, of the pain, of the way you have been wronged, that reminds you of the full cost. So, the backpack's up here. Find that story. Hold that story. Think about that story. And then find some trusted people. Maybe people in your sermon-based small group, maybe a dear friend, a partner, someone who will listen to you. Because forgiveness so often begins with naming it, by bringing that story, that experience, out of your body into the open. It's almost confessional to say, this thing happened to me, and it really hurt, and I want to talk about what happened. Holding on to that image of the arrow or backpack, and that is in your power to put the backpack down to start to pull the arrow out. Dr. Fred Luskin, who is the director and co-founder of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, suggests that forgiveness often isn't as hard as it seems. And he writes, If someone said they'd give you a million dollars if you dropped the grudge against your boss or your in-laws or even your partner or whoever it is, you'd most likely be able to do it. Right? A million bucks. You're like, yeah, I could forgive my boss for being a, you know, having a bad temper. I could forgive my in-laws for sniping about how I raise my kids or whatever it is. A million bucks. The point he makes is that finding the place inside you that allows for forgiveness is, is not like, it's, it's not that that place doesn't exist. It's there. We just don't maybe have practice or the tools or a skill set that allows us to access it. We might not use it much, but it's there. And a powerful story or image can help us access it. I don't want to sugarcoat forgiveness. It's not easy work, especially if you have been hurt and hurt deeply. But the shift I want to invite you to think about as we begin to forgive 
is that we stop thinking of ourselves as only the victim in the story and begin to think of ourselves as a hero in a new story. A hero that was hurt, yes, the arrow hurt, the grudges weighed us down, but the hero that didn't give another human being the power to ruin your day or your week or your year. So the first thing is to find a story, an image, a narrative that reminds you, like Kelly Clement said a couple weeks ago, that not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and hoping the rats will die. Right? Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and hoping the rats are going to die. It's toxic and poison. So the first practical thing is have a story that helps you understand the costs of not practicing forgiveness. The second way to live with more forgiveness is, according to Dr. Luskin, learning to let go of the unenforceable rules in your life. The rules about how the world and other people should behave. You have some of those rules, I see. (laughs) I do too. I mean, we create, let's be honest, we create these rules all the time, these unenforceable rules. And when they're violated, we're left feeling hurt and wounded. But the truth is, we have no real way to enforce these rules anyway. We just create them and create a little world where we think that's how it should be. And then when it doesn't, we're really ticked off. Dr. Luskin gives this example, this humorous example. He says, you may have a legitimate expectation that your car will start, but you still have to leave some wiggle room when it doesn't. People who have no wiggle room curse and scream and blow up at their car or their computer or their iPhone or whatever it is. People who understand that their car doesn't have to start might say, boy, it was sure good. It started 98% of the time. (laughs) Other strategies for living appear once you accept the fact that there are limits to what you can demand and enforce around you. As a personal example, one of my unenforceable rules is that no cell phones go off during the service. (laughs) This was hilarious. At 9 o'clock, actually, in the final hymn, somebody's cell phone did go off. And it was like, I had to practice what I'm telling you all right now. I was like, oh, woo! (laughs) Because when the cell phone rings, I can either get worked up and roiled up and like kind of let that anger work on me, Or I can take a deep breath and say, wow, how fascinating. (laughs) And I can think to myself, you know, my cell phone has gone off in in, inappropriate times and, and moments, and I am going to let this go. The world may never follow our rules, but that doesn't mean we should develop a permanent bitterness and anger towards it. This seems and feels especially true when it comes to faith and action and social justice work. We live in a broken world. In our country alone, millions are hungry and homeless and addicted and uninsured. And in our country and around the world, the disparity between those who have more than enough and those who have nothing is is growing. So I have an unenforceable expectation or dream about justice in the world about how I want the world and people to be as, the, as it relates to equality and freedom. 
Is it a dream worth articulating and fighting for and rallying around? Yes, of course. Is it a dream worth getting bitter and angry about? Letting indignant righteousness rule my life. There was a time where I would say, not enough people have those fluorescent light bulbs in their house and they don't carpool enough and they're not composting and we're all going to die when the oceans rise. It was, a little, it was a little much. Yeah, amen. I had, I, had to, I had to, it's important, right? I mean, global climate change matters, and we need to change how we consume and how we are in relationship with the planet. But it was extreme, and it shaded a lot in my life. So it's not worth letting the dream make me bitter and angry and resentful. Because the dream is slow and coming, and the setbacks are many. I'm not saying don't stop dreaming and striving and working for change, but recognize the unenforceable rules you live with. Leave yourself some wiggle room. Forgive the world its imperfections. And the third thing, and this is pretty simple, the most obvious way to live with more forgiveness is to practice more forgiveness. It's a learned skill. It's like riding a bike or an instrument, or a new sport. You don't just get on the field or hop on a bike and know how to do it. It takes practice. You can start small with forgiveness. After all, you don't have to start by forgiving the most hurtful person in your life. That would be like climbing uh, Mount Everest on your first little foray into mountain hike climbing. Start small. You might forgive mean people in traffic. I can't believe how worked up I get in traffic sometimes. Maybe you can forgive me. if I, I always have that nightmare, actually, where I cut somebody off or something accidentally or because I'm in a rush, and it turns out to be a congregant, and I'm like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is not good. <laughs> but so you can start small. Forgive small people. Uh, forgive people in, mean people in traffic. Uh, forgive someone you're holding a grudge against or that person who talked on their cell phone during the movie. I don't know if that happens to you. I'm surprised how frequently that does happen. Or you could forgive the slow checker in the express lane. And you're like, why are you in this lane? This is the express lane. (laughs) Or you could forgive your partner for leaving dirty dishes in the sink or the bed undone. Whatever it might be. The point is, practice forgiving small little things first. And then slowly, as you feel more comfortable, move to the larger things. Work to forgive someone who really let you down when you needed them the most. And recognize that all of us have the potential to fall short, to commit wrongs. And in that process, you may understand more about why you were let down or what happened. You might work to forgive your parents or maybe yourself. As Kate Tucker said two weeks ago, self-forgiveness can be the hardest. But try to practice forgiveness every day. Get in forgiveness shape, as it were. If it's helpful in your practice of forgiveness, remember this advice from Mac Tucker. And Mac Tucker could be an everyman. I read an article about him and his wife, Amy. They have been married for 60 years, and they were recently interviewed to talk about forgiveness. You know, they've been together for so long. And Mac was explaining that Amy suffers from dementia, And he, Mac, as her primary caretaker, regularly forgives her. According to Mac, she recently put the remote control in the freezer. 
it, it's funny, but it's, it's a reality for people that this is those who take care of people with dementia. This happens. He says, I got upset, but went through the whole forgiveness process. I just try to take it one day at a time. And he explained in this article that for the 60 years of their marriage, the long-standing rule they had with one another was don't go to bed without forgiving. It's a tall, tall order. But not impossible. You can start small. You can find a core story that helps you see the costs of not forgiving. You can let go or lessen your hold on some of those unenforceable rules in your life. And you can practice, practice, practice. So this morning, my challenge to you is this. Before you turn off the light and fall asleep tonight, think about a person or thing you'd like to forgive. Start small. Start small if you have to and be gentle with yourself. It is a process, not a one-time event. But I invite you to let the healing begin, to pull out the arrow you've been shot with, to free yourself from the grudge you've been carrying so that you may lay at least some of those burdens down. And as you do, may you move into a future of love and possibility and renewed strength. May it be so. And amen.